Making the case for saving Veritas. This week on Planetary Radio. I'm Sarah Alahmed of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. This week, we have a very special guest, Darby Dyer, the Deputy Principal Investigator on NASA's Veritas mission to Venus, which is now on an indefinite hold. Darby will share the story behind the spacecraft and the foundational science it hopes to achieve. Then we'll kick it over to Bruce Betts for What's Up. He'll let you know what to spot in the upcoming night sky, take a look back at this week in space history, and we'll wrap up with our space trivia contest. But first, it's time for some space news. Environmental groups are suing the United States Federal Aviation Administration over SpaceX's Starship launch. The lawsuit argues that the FAA failed to fully assess the environmental impacts of the Starship launches from Boca Chica, Texas. It cites as an example the April 20th launch that scattered debris over Boca Chica State Park. The launch created plumes of material that spread 10 kilometers or 6 miles and caused a 3.5-acre wildfire. SpaceX says that it's taking measures to prevent similar debris in future launches. Our chief of space policy, Casey Dreyer, discussed this turn of events with environmental expert Eric Roche in our most recent space policy edition of Planetary Radio, which came out on May 5th. If you're a fan of the beloved Voyager spacecrafts, we've got some great news. Voyager 2's lifespan has been extended thanks to engineering ingenuity. The spacecraft launched in 1977 and is now in interstellar space. It has very limited battery power remaining and was facing possible shutdown, but mission engineers found a way to reroute power to science instruments from a non-essential voltage regulator. This could potentially extend the spacecraft's lifespan by three years to 2026. Meanwhile, back on Earth, plutonium, which powers missions like Voyager, is in short supply. Missions that travel far from the sun need nuclear power rather than solar power to operate. But the particular isotope that these generators use, which is plutonium-238, is very difficult to produce. Only about 1.5 kilograms or 3.3 pounds of plutonium-238 is produced in the United States each year. And this won't be enough to power all of the planetary science missions planned for the next decade. NASA is developing more efficient power technologies, but the agency has had to scale back on these efforts due to budget cuts. It's a conundrum. And what happens when you combine a global pandemic, growing competition from the private sector, and a never-before-seen mission? In the case of NASA's Psyche mission, you get a delay. When Psyche missed its launch date in 2022, it set off a chain reaction of delays and cost overruns on other missions led by the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, including the indefinite hold on the Veritas mission, which we'll be discussing shortly. Lori Leshen, who took over as JPL director around the time that this was all happening, shared her insights with us on the myriad causes that contributed to the situation and what she's trying to do to right the ship. You can get more information on all of these stories in the May 5th edition of the Planetary Society's weekly newsletter, The Downlink. Read it or subscribe to have it sent to your inbox for free every Friday at planetary.org downlink. Now, you may have noticed that in recent decades, there's been an absence of NASA missions to Venus. Earth's enigmatic neighbor is shrouded in thick clouds and scorching temperatures. And despite its relative proximity to Earth, 
there's a lot of fundamental questions about Venus that remain unanswered. We need to know more about its geologic history, its atmospheric composition, and whether it once harbored water or even life. The lack of missions to this world has hindered scientific progress, leaving us with a limited understanding of the planet's evolution and potential habitability. That's where NASA's Veritas mission comes in. Veritas stands for the Venus Emissivity Radio Science INSAR Topography and Spectroscopy Mission. It was designed to address these gaps in our knowledge by mapping Venus's surface and collecting data on its geology, topography, and atmosphere. The mission aimed to help scientists unravel the planet's mysteries and compare its geological processes to those on Earth. Unfortunately, in November 2022, NASA announced that the Veritas mission would be put on hold. This delay not only sets humanity back in the timeline for gathering crucial information about Venus, but it's also having devastating impacts on the Veritas team and its international partners. That's why in April, the Planetary Society teamed up with the American Geophysical Union and several prominent academic institutions to call on the U.S. Congress to save the Veritas mission. Our guest this week is Dr. Darby Dyer, the Deputy Principal Investigator on the Veritas mission. She's a professor of astronomy at Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts, USA. Darby specializes in planetary science with a focus on understanding the distribution of elements throughout our solar system. She's published over 260 scientific papers and won numerous awards for contributions to her field. Darby has spent time studying the moon, Mars, and asteroids, but Venus, among all of these beautiful worlds, is a target that she's had her sights on for decades. Hi, Darby. Thanks for joining me on Planetary Radio. Oh, so happy to be here. You know, the United States has not been back to Venus with a big mission since Magellan in the 1990s. And I was so pleased when NASA announced, I think it was two years ago now, that we were going to be having two big major missions go out to Venus. It feels like now is the perfect time to do that. And then we had this beautiful moment where the decadal survey doubled down on those priorities, told us that going to Venus was something that we should be doing. So I was on a Venus hype train right up until the moment that I found out that Veritas was on an indefinite hold. A lot of people, when they hear a space mission is delayed, you know, they, they can kind of shrug it off. But this is more than about a spacecraft. This is a human story that I feel like you are uniquely situated to tell. So how did you find out that the Veritas mission was going to be on this indefinite hold? <sighs> well, let me backtrack and go back to the beginning. I started graduate school in the fall of 1980, and at that time, the U.S. had a big mission planned to Venus called Venus Orbital Imaging Radar, and it was a bonanza mission, Christmas tree, many different cool Venus instruments. And so the first course I took in graduate school was about Venus. I, at that point, bought the Venus t-shirt also and became emotionally involved in Venus. And soon thereafter, I experienced my first political disappointment of my career as a scientist, which is that Ronald Reagan got elected and VOIR was canceled. At that point, I decided, okay, I'm going to do my thesis on lunar samples and maybe I'll work on meteorites for a while and maybe the pendulum will swing back and someday I'll get to work on Venus again. And so in the meantime, I did all of those things. I was part of the uh, Curiosity rover science team. We built part of the rover at Mount Holyoke College. But all of that time in my heart, I carried Veritas. So the story goes, 12 years ago, we started working on this, at least a precursor to this mission. 
And we've been working on it really hard ever since. And so, as you said, to find out two years ago that we got selected was a pivotal moment in my career. So fast forward 18 months after that, I was actually at a conference in Houston at the Lunar and Planetary Institute about lunar samples. And I got a phone call from the PI, Seuss McCarr, who said, call me. I was like, okay. So I stepped out in the hallway and called Sue and she said, Darby, we're in trouble. They are going to put us on indefinite hold or maybe even cancel us. And so there I stood in the hallway with tears streaming down my cheeks. I I was speechless. We were completely blindsided. I, I didn't know what to say. You hear in books about people working on something for a decade and finally having it happen. And so I always thought that that was our fairy tale. And to have the rug pulled out from under us after a decade of working on this thing was heartbreaking is the only word I can use. I think something that's also really important for people to understand about this is that this mission was postponed or put on an indefinite hold for no fault of its own. Your team was on budget, you were on time, but I'm sure as everyone is well aware, we've been through this really difficult period the last few years. The COVID pandemic had all of these knock-on effects, and that wasn't the only reason why other missions at NASA were delayed, but primarily the Psyche mission got delayed a little bit, and that caused this knock-on effect. It caused this delay to Veritas. And your team did absolutely nothing wrong. That feels a little unprecedented. Yeah. You know, in my life, I try to always say, what could I have done differently, you know, to, to affect a better outcome? And in this situation, there's nothing that anyone on the Veritas team could have done to affect a better outcome. And that's another part of this that is really hard to accept. There are many missions about to go to Venus, but what this spacecraft does is pivotal in the structure of all that we're trying to learn. Why don't we go into this from the very beginning? Like, what are the main mission objectives for Veritas? In planetary science, it's a sort of a typical progression that when you start to explore a body, one of the first things you do is do a topography map. Because regardless of whether you're going to do some kind of orbital measurement in which you need to know where the high mountains are, or whether you're going to do take pictures or do any other kinds of measurements, you need a topographic map. Quickly following on that, in most planetary bodies will come some kind of camera so you can figure out what the surface looks like in whatever wavelength range you're able to make the measurements. Because we haven't been to Venus in 30 years, the data we have on Venus are nothing short of pathetic. <laughs> Let's put it that way. We have better topographic data on Pluto, which isn't even a planet, than we do on Venus. We don't know the rock type on Venus. We have <laughs> we have a, a few chemical analyses from a handful of sites that look like basalt, but that's like saying, you know, I'm going to walk out in my backyard and analyze the outcrop back there, and then I'm going to extrapolate that to all of Earth. That's just ridiculous. So Veritas was really designed as the fundamental mission to take us to Venus and get us ready for whatever kind of exploration comes next. And the two fundamental measurements that we really need to make on Venus are, what is the topography? We need to get the topography better than Pluto and as, as good as Mars. And we need to get good topography data on Venus. And then secondly, we need to get some hint of what the rock type is. Uh, so those are the two big measurements. And we're going to cover the entire planet with these measurements many times over. So all of these data lay the groundwork for anything that can come after us, including potentially a Venus lander, which was proposed by the recent decadal uh, survey as one of their possible flagship missions. 
we'd love to know more about what the atmospheric composition is so we can do orbital measurements even better. So those are the two fundamental measurements that we're making, the two, really the two big instruments that we have, the radar, which will make topographic measurements, and the spectrometer, which will take spectra of the surface. I know too that it's not an instrument necessarily, but you're also going to be getting gravitational information about this planet as well as you're orbiting, right? Right. So another of the big mysteries that's persevered ever since Magellan is the whole question of how does Venus resurface and how does Venus lose its heat? And in order to answer those two questions, we need to understand the thickness of the crust and how and where heat is flowing out of the planet. And as part of that, we will also determine the size of the core and in its state, whether it's liquid or solid, from these gravity measurements. So those, again, are it's fundamental measurements. You know, in any science, it seems that fundamental measurements should come first before you do all the other exciting things. But they are the, the foundation on which all subsequent Venus research must rest. You have to recognize that Venus is similar to so many of the hundreds and soon thousands of exoplanets that we're discovering. And if we don't understand what Venus is doing, we can't hope to understand what's actually happening on exoplanets. I think Venus is the key to following the water in our solar system. If, if you're familiar with the Mars program, you know, as I am, you know that uh, for many years, the slogan for the whole Mars program was follow the water and find the life. That was what we were doing. But in the last five years, it's become obvious to everyone involved that Mars only had liquid water for 300 million years compared with Venus's liquid water, which was, by some estimates, as much as 3 billion years. So if you're going to look for life elsewhere in the solar system, Venus seems to me now the logical place to be looking for it. So Venus is so important in the light of that habitability discussion, because if indeed there was liquid water and if indeed there were to have been life developed during those three billion years, then that's a pretty good scenario for all those other Venus-like exoplanets that we're finding. And to me, I don't know, I always say as a professor that the most profound question you can ask in almost any class at college is, are we alone? And I think Venus might hold the keys to answering that question. What I'm wondering is what this mission can actually tell us about that history of habitability and how this world has changed over time. What are the measurements that we're going to be taking that will help us determine that? Let's talk a little bit about plate tectonics for a minute. So Earth is the only planet that we know of that has plate tectonics on it currently. And yet there are tantalizing hints on the surface of Venus that perhaps there are trench-like structures around the fringes of these large volcanic structures called corona. There are many scientists who have put forth compelling arguments to suggest that the trenches around the corona could be the nascent plate tectonics smoking gun on Venus. If that's the case, then plate tectonics is not unique to Earth. And why is that important? It's important because although we think about plate tectonics in terms of recycling crust, it's also recycling water. And plate tectonics has a very valuable role on Earth in helping to affect and influence our hydrologic cycle. And so if there is plate tectonics on Venus, then that could have both in the past and in the future play a very important role in regulating how water is extracted from the planet. So that's a key question. So another thing that we'd really like to know that's related to plate tectonics, of course, is, is there active volcanism? We've recently found in 30-year-old Magellan data evidence for 
pretty obvious volcanic eruption that suggests that volcanism was going on 30 years ago on Venus and presumably is still going on today. How will Veritas deal with this? Veritas has a lot of cool ways that he can do this. First of all, it can see the ground moving. Second of all, we can see the glow of a volcanic eruption. You know, when there's heat and light being given off by an eruption, you can see that from orbit. And the other thing that happens in an eruption, of course, is that gases are given off. And Veritas has spectral bands that can detect gases being given off. So Veritas has many different ways of detecting change, not to mention radar pictures, which will presumably show the same kinds of changes that were detected by the previous paper, i.e. a volcanic vent opening up or the texture of a flow changing as it moves away from a vent, those sorts of things. Happily, this is not the end of the tale. While the situation is a little Dyer. Darby Dyer. Sorry to make that joke. <laughs> we still have a chance to change this. And we've been working very hard in our advocacy efforts at the Planetary Society to try to support this mission. And I'm really happy to share that over a thousand people in the United States written their Congress people to try to advocate for this mission because we believe it's important. So what are you hoping would be the outcome? What can Congress do to save this mission? First of all, let me say on behalf of the team, many of whom are unable to lobby because they are federal employees, but on behalf of those who can speak, I want to say that we are so grateful to everyone, especially including the Planetary Society, for reaching out and helping us advocate for this mission. You know, it's one thing to be a heartbroken scientist, but to know that you're a heartbroken scientist supported by a community of people who believe in science is incredibly inspiring, and it's really made all the difference in this battle. I personally went to Washington and visited over 105 congressional offices myself, uh, wore out some shoe leather in the process of doing that, and was aided in that by Jack Corrali of the Planetary Society. And it was really inspiring on those visits to find out that most of the congressional people support NASA. People are really interested in Venus, excited about what NASA is doing, understand on both sides of the aisle that scientific exploration and fundamental science of the sort to be done by Veritas is something that everyone wants to do. So that's been quite heartwarming to know that to, to know that we're supported by people. However, the battle isn't over. We went to those congressional offices and asked for some specific authorization language in support of launching Veritas in 2029. So I won't have quite as much white hair by the time it launches myself. If we launch Veritas in 2029, we'll still beat Envision and Da Vinci to, to Venus and we'll be able to support them in ways that are useful. So launching Veritas in 2029 is the goal of our public relations campaign. And no matter what the outcome is, whether or not we manage to save Veritas or not, I want to thank you and the rest of the team for putting so much thought and effort into this beautiful mission, whether or not it flies now or we have to wait another 10 or 20 years and rebuild the thing. It'll happen and it's going to be amazing. <laughs> we'll get there and God willing, I'll be on the mission. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Darby, for joining us and sharing your very human story and letting everybody know why they should get behind this mission. Because I, I know I'm very passionate about this. And I think a lot of other people just became huge Veritas fans. Go Veritas. My conversation with Darby Dyer is a poignant reminder of the dedication and tireless efforts that thousands of people invest in every space mission. It's easy to overlook the human element behind each instrument and piece of bent metal, 
But these spacecraft carry the dreams and aspirations that drive scientists and engineers to push the boundaries of human knowledge. The Planetary Society's members have a remarkable history of working together to save space missions over the last four decades. I'm so grateful for every person who's helped support our campaign to save this mission. And I really hope that by working together, we can put Veritas on that list. You can hear the extended edition of my interview with Dr. Darby Dyer, the Deputy Principal Investigator on NASA's Veritas Mission to Venus, in the podcast and online version of this show at planetary.org slash radio or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. We'll be right back for what's up after this short break. Hi, this is Kate from the Planetary Society. How does space spark your creativity? We want to hear from you. Whether you make cosmic art, take photos through a telescope, write haikus about the planets, or invent space games for your family, really any creative activity that's space-related, we invite you to share it with us. You can add your work to our collection by emailing it to us at connect at planetary.org. That's connect at planetary.org. Thanks! Hello, I'm George Takei, and as you know, I'm very proud of my association with Star Trek. Star Trek was a show that looked to the future with optimism, boldly going where no one had gone before. I want you to know about a very special organization called the Planetary Society. They are working to make the future that Star Trek represents a reality. Boldly go to build our future. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. And now it's time for What's Up with Bruce Betts, the Chief Scientist of the Planetary Society. Hey, Bruce. Hi, Sarah. What do we have to look forward to in the night sky this week, Bruce? Oh, there's good stuff. Just keep mentioning Venus. Well, not even that low in the west after sunset. Super bright. Uh, We've got Mars significantly above, well, above Venus. We've got some interesting things coming up in the evening sky. Mars is in a line with the twin stars of Gemini, Pollux and Castor, on May 15th, making kind of a neat, even roughly evenly spaced line, and Venus is down below them. On May 23rd, the crescent moon is near the star Pollux, our friend, in Gemini, and between reddish Mars above and super bright Venus below. So you got a nice top going down, Mars. Crescent Moon, Venus, with Castor and Pollux hanging out in Gemini. That's the 23rd. Then we go to the pre-dawn sky. You got Saturn up, getting pretty high, looking yellowish. Jupiter, our friend Jupiter, the second brightest star-like object in the night sky, is uh, starting to come up. It's really low, though. But if you can see it on May 17th, the Crescent Moon is hanging out very close to it in the pre-dawn east on the May 17th. But again, you'll need a a nice view to the low to the horizon and just not long before dawn. We move on to this week in space history. It was the last mission of the U.S. Mercury program was this week in 1963. Gordon Cooper flew in Faith 7 with 22 orbits around the Earth before splashing down. You know, lots of other good stuff happened. But I'm excited to get us along to the This must be exciting. What have we got this week? Well, what's exciting is this this week, shortly after this episode comes out, actually right around then, uh, there's an Apophis workshop. 
T-minus six years for the asteroid Apophis until it flies by on April 13, 2029, closer than geostationary satellites. That's about a 300-meter asteroid. We've talked about it before. We'll talk about it again. I want to point out that it will be traveling, if you're one of the places that can see it, which is parts of Europe, Africa, Western Asia, at that time, it'll be moving along, clipping along at a little more than one lunar diameter per minute. Wow. One lunar diameter per minute. It's supposed to be roughly magnitude three at its brightest. That would be easily visible from a dark site, reasonably visible from a suburban site, and could be challenging from a bright city site. But with binoculars, you can pick it up. So anyway, get ready. Six years to go, Apophis, it will not hit us then. It will not hit us in 2036. It will not hit us for at least 100 years, probably more. But it is the closest uh, flyby of an asteroid this size in recorded history. So a lot to learn. We move on to the trivia contest. I said the following five things are still going or working. Put them in chronological order from oldest to youngest with spacecraft starting with their launch date and for others, the first public release. So we had Mars Curiosity Rover, Planetary Radio, Minecraft, Mars Odyssey, and iPhones. How'd we do? A lot of people got this right. The answer goes in this order. First, we have Mars Odyssey in 2001. Then Planetary Radio, our favorite, in 2002. Yay. The iPhone. This was an interesting one. iPhone came out in 2007. Then Minecraft. That was 2011. And then literally just a few days after Minecraft launched, the Mars Curiosity rover launched. So people got those two a little bit back and forth, but that is the correct order. Our winner this week is Aquiel Godot from Los Angeles, California, USA. Well, that's pretty cool. Another really cool thing that happened this week is, you know, every once in a while, people will send me some cool stuff to the office because they're fans of Planetary Radio or they want us to check out their new book, that kind of thing. And this time I went to my desk and I was very happy to see that uh, a company called Solar Studios sent me the collector's edition of their core rulebook for their new Red Sky RPG. <laughs> and I know that this happened because I started rolling dice for Planetary Radio instead of using the random number generator. But I'm very grateful that they sent that to me because now I have two copies, one of which I can give away on the show. <laughs> so if anybody out there is a fan of tabletop roleplay games, for people who are fans of Dungeons and Dragons, Red Sky is a magicless science fiction setting that's based off of the fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons world. So the whole thing takes place on this cool world ship in space. I haven't messed around with it too much, but our trivia winner this week is going to win my new core rulebook extra copy. So what is our trivia question this week? Oh, yeah, we should do another one. What will the OSIRIS-REx mission be renamed when it starts its new mission to the asteroid Apophis? after it drops off its asteroid Bennu sample at Earth. What will they rename OSIRIS-REx to? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. And you have until May 17th at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us your answer. Lucky winner will win a copy of this Red Sky Core rulebook. And I tell you, I am so excited that OSIRIS-REx is going to Apophis. This is, this is going to be so cool. Oh, it's very cool. Very, very cool. Uh, they'll arrive very, very shortly after closest approach, but we'll be able to assess uh, some of the changes. Uh, that's great. And they're bringing rocks back from Benno in just a few months. Here they come. 
I mean, after the sample, the way that container tried to close, but it couldn't because it, it literally had too much stuff in its little robot mouth. That was awesome. I'm expecting a lot of cool rocks. <laughs> robot mouth. I like that. I like that very much. Um, and I'm just going to tell everyone to go out there, look up the night sky and think about robot mouths. As I know I am now, and I'm a little disturbed, but thank you and good night. We've reached the end of this week's episode of Planetary Radio, but we'll be back next week with more of the passion, beauty, and joy of space exploration. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by our dedicated members and space advocates. Mark Hilverta and Ray Pauletta are our associate producers. Andrew Lucas is our audio editor. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. And until next week, Ad Astra. Ad Astra.